Let's talk about the second patient. Okay. This patient is a 60-year-old postmenopausal woman who's initially from Germany, although she's been living in this country since the mid-1990s. Interestingly, she has a background as a naturopathic healer and had a practice, you know, engaging in that in Germany before she emigrated and has still done a bit of that. She developed some mass effect in her right breast that she states when we interviewed her even about this today was present for a number of months, but it was most likely quite a bit longer than that. She did tell us today, and we went over some of this in our interview with her today. I thought it was a good time for us to explore some of these issues again, which she did at great length with Dr. Burris, that she had not been to see a standard physician in about 25 years. So she certainly had not come up with mammography or anything along that line. So she did have a biopsy done and was found to have infiltrating ductal carcinoma. How big was her primary? Her primary was eight centimeters. Any changes on the skin or any other? No, she didn't have any inflammatory change, just a large-sized primary tumor. And what about her workup? Workup did show a metastasis to the bone in a sacral area, and this was biopsied and found to be consistent with metastatic breast cancer. So interestingly, we also had sent at the time, before we had the diagnosis of metastatic disease, an oncotype assay had been sent on her, I believe, by her surgeon at the time of the initial biopsy. And interestingly, that returned that it was a low-risk tumor. It was in the low group with a score of uh, 15. And they felt the chance of distant recurrence with hormonal treatment would be about 10% at the 10-year mark. But indeed, she already had a distant recurrence. So that suggests that this tumor was probably present for a little more than the couple of months that the patient would admit to. That's really wild, Skip, when you think about it. We always talk about the fact that, you know, when a woman presents with locally advanced disease, you know, did she observe it? And, you know, sometimes these women seem to have very kind of slow, benign courses as opposed to an explosive workup. You already had the clinical clue that she'd watched this for a while, but it's really interesting that you have oncotype results that sort of back that up, <laughs> I guess, Skip. It is. She was a fascinating patient, well-educated lived in Germany until 1992 when she moved here, was very free in discussing with medical physicians like Lola and I about her role as a holistic healer, her naturopathic practice. She demonstrated on me how she did it with a patient. And to her credit, she held her hands over my head and determined that I had a headache, which was correct. But <laughs> she, she was sincere about you know, the power of the mind and meditation. As Lowell alluded to, I mean, she has decided now to be involved with having a physician care for her, and her relationship with Lowell and Nicole, the nurse practitioner, were clearly close, and she was happy to be there in the office. So I think she's going to be a compliant patient, but she certainly has her ideas about what she's willing to take for therapy. Right. Interesting. I assume she was HER2 negative. Yes, she was. So she was ER positive, PR positive, HER2 negative. What was the initial treatment that she got? Well, it was difficult to decide. Clearly, she had a hormone-sensitive tumor. It was metastatic. She was, you know, a relatively young woman for this part of Florida at 60. And she was, after the time of diagnosis, she was upset about the size of the tumor. The surgeon had some concerns about how well he could get by with a mastectomy on her. So there was some preference giving her some upfront treatment. She really did not want 
anything too aggressive. So I actually gave her Paxotere and Cytoxin, the TC regimen, for four cycles preoperatively. I didn't feel strongly, although I've usually used anthracycline therapy in that in the past, I didn't feel strongly that since she was HER2 negative and ER positive that she absolutely had to have an anthracycline, as we're all aware of the data from SLAME in this group and the BCIRG about that. So she actually had a nice clinical response, and the tumor seemed to shrink down to some extent, and it was down to, by measurement, to about five centimeters at the time that she went to surgery. And then what happened post-op? Well, post-op, they only had a small sampling. I believe she had one node positive at the time of surgery. But the surgeon, since she had metastatic disease, did not make an attempt at doing a big clearance. This was essentially sort of a, you know, salvage, local control type tumor. She recovered well from the surgery, and I was ready to start her on hormonal treatment. So at that time, we had a protocol open or clinical trial for uh, treatment with hormonal agent plus Avastin. So she was eligible for that and went on trial with Arimidex and Avastin. And before we go on, Skip, can you just talk about what we know about that strategy of using bevacizumab and hormones and what trials are out there and what data we have on that? It's interesting. There's not a lot of data about giving an angiogenesis inhibitor and hormonal therapy. The responses that were seen with single-agent bevacizumab in the original phase two trials were largely in soft tissue disease. When you think about patients such as this one that have bone-only disease or have an ERPR positive, slower growing type of breast cancer, it seems natural to think about bringing angiogenesis inhibitor into the mix. We've been conducting a trial at Sarah Cannon. We presented some of the data at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Meeting. And although the results are preliminary, 79 patients are the total that are enrolled to date. And half the patients get anastrozole and half the patients get fulvestrant that in that setting, the progression-free survival is over a year and the response rate is close to 40% in the patients with measurable disease. Now, this is with bevacizumab? Correct. And everybody gets bevacizumab. The patients generally get bevacizumab plus the aromatase inhibitor if they've not had a prior aromatase inhibitor, or you get fulvestrin if you've had it. You know, with regard to crosstalk among pathways, I mean, it's two very different targets that you're focusing on. It's clear that we're seeing some very substantial benefits. I personally have a patient on that trial that had locally recurrent breast cancer. There was a difficult situation in previously radiated breast, and she's had a near-complete remission. She had such a dramatic response, they were able to do just a little bit of radiation therapy, and she continues on the program for more than a year. There's been a number of dramatic clinical benefits with this, and really a very well-tolerated regimen. There's some additional trials that are going on. There's some work with letrozole and bevacizumab, and then some of the new oral angiogenesis inhibitors. There's more work being looked on with the sudetinibs, serafinibs, pazopinibs, and the hormonal agents. I'm going to assume that maybe this is a strategy that should not be used outside of trial settings, Skip? I would say so. I think that the hard part about that, Neil, and the reason I hesitate is if you had a patient who had a great response to paclitaxel and bevacizumab, as was conducted in Kathy Miller's E2100 trial, and you finish the chemotherapy or you begin to develop neuropathy and you're continuing the bevacizumab, if the patient was known to be ERP or positive, and I've done this recently, I add back hormonal therapy. So as a primary mode of treating a patient, I would agree with you being on study, but I've got a handful of patients in my practice who are actually taking hormonal therapy with bevacizumab. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It's also interesting, 
lull that with her naturopath background, although it sounds like you hooked up with her pretty well, that she would be interested in a clinical research trial. Right. You know, I think she has accepted. She's an intelligent lady, and she's not, although she does have this naturopathic background, I think she is not antagonistic to dealing with mainline physicians. She actually said today when we started talking about her case, she, to describe herself, she says, oh, I was a bad girl. I didn't go and see doctors for 25 years. So, you know, we've tried not to make her feel guilty about any of this stuff, but I think she, you know, in the back of her head, realizes that, you know, she felt that this was just bad humors coming out, but yet the biopsy did show she had cancer, and so therefore this is something she has to deal with. She's not so wedded to a non-traditional method that she's going to, you know, waste her life on it at this point. And Neil, I think the important part of that conversation and being a witness to it, her relationship with Lowell and Nicole, I think Lowell and Nicole talked to her and explained things to her almost as one scientist to another. She viewed herself as a scientist. She just has a different means of treating things. And so, you know, it was a very congenial conversation. And I think to Lowell's credit, there wasn't any intent to demean what she had tried to do in the past. And I think she was open to saying, what I've been doing isn't working and I'm receptive to your ideas. Right. Sounds like she has maybe a little bit of a sense of humor. She does. I think she does to that extent. And when we get to the next point of the story, you can see I'm pleased that she, you know, was willing to have an open mind about all of these things. So what happened? Well, she got started and had two doses of Avastin and then, you know, was tolerating things quite well, came to the office and I saw her and she told me she was feeling short of breath. And on examination, she was clearly very tachycardic with an irregular pulse, and she had atrial fibrillation of new onset with a rapid ventricular response. So since she was so short of breath, I felt that we should have her into the hospital. So we did admit her to the hospital and did a cardiac workup on her, and she saw the cardiologist, an echocardiogram done, and she indeed had a somewhat depressed ejection fraction, kind of in the 30-40% range. She had the atrial fibrillation, you know, easily controlled with the usual medications and is feeling pretty much back to her normal energy level now. She had a pleural fusion too? Yeah, she had a pleural fusion also. Was that tapped? That was not tapped, but has been clearing up with the treatment of heart failure. So she's due for rescans fairly soon. So if obviously that persists, we'll tap it if it goes away. I'm going to assume it was due to the cardiac problems. So she was coded as an adverse event, you know, possibly related to the treatment with bevacizumab. So one of the things, since she'd not been to see a physician for 25 years and had no history and no obvious cardiac abnormalities on initial exam, I don't know exactly what her ejection fraction, what her cardiac status was, I think it is quite possible that there was some impairment of that before we started that was just under the surface. So at this point, she's still on the Arimidex alone, is tolerating this well, aside from some arthralgias and also concerns about the cost of the medication, since she's not working at present, the cost of the medication, which it's interesting, she had not brought this up to me until today. So since we had this consultation with Dr. Burris today, you know, she was able to bring up a lot of, it was actually very helpful, I think, for both the patient and myself, because we were able to bring up a lot of issues that in the usual rush rush of a standard clinic visit, we don't always get to bring up. And she did tell us more about arthralgias from the AI than she had before. And she'd also told us more about difficulties with the cost of the medication. So we're starting to work on that with her. So just to pick up on a couple of these things, Skip, in terms of what's going on in terms of cardiac 
Any thoughts about whether this would maybe be related to Bevacizumab? Is this the type of an event that's been seen with Bevacizumab, or do you think this is just coincidental? I think it's very difficult to tell. She's a larger woman. I would not be surprised at all if she didn't have some baseline underlying cardiac dysfunction. She is 60 years of age. You know, assuming that levosuzumab being added on and caused some relative hypertension problems from her for even if it wasn't something that needed to be managed in the clinic, I could certainly see it exacerbating the situation. So I think Lowell did the right thing here and being concerned about being part of the problem here possibly could be re-explored later. She was in atrial fibrillation today in the clinic, although she did have a slower heart rate. She was definitely below 100 today, and she actually went through it fine. She came to the office, and then they treated her through the episode without a great deal of incident. But it certainly could be part of the bevacizumab story. What about the arthralgias, law? What specifically is she describing? She described just sort of an aching in her hands, sort of up to the elbows, nothing in the lower extremities. And she's noticed that a bit more over the last couple of months. I mean, it's not anything that has really interfered too much with her quality of life. I don't think she's really been taking medication for it. She's sort of been afraid to take anything. And I told her I don't have a problem if she takes ibuprofen or something similar to that. And I also told her that if it gets worse, to make sure that she lets me know and we could consider switching over to another aromatase inhibitor, that there's several that we have to choose from if we need to. I'm curious, Skip, whether your approach to the issue of arthralgias or vasomotor symptoms has changed at all or you're rethinking at all since the paper in The Lancet by Cusick and all suggesting in the adjuvant setting that patients who, out of the attack trial, patients who have vasomotor symptoms and or arthralgias seem to be having a greater anti-tumor effect you know, it made me think that you know, you turn around to a patient like this and say, well, if you can really live with this, this might be sort of a sign that the drug's actually working. I don't know if that's legitimate or not. What do you think about that paper, Skip? Well, I haven't heard the data discussed and presented, not having read the paper myself. It is interesting, and it certainly seems plausible and believable. You know, to have a more dramatic effect at an anti-estrogen level would probably cause a greater exacerbation of these types of symptoms. It's reminiscent of when we're talking with a patient receiving erlotinib with lung cancer or cetuximab with colon cancer, they're disappointed on getting the acneiform rash and the physicians are excited and you have to reach a compromise on managing the symptom and believing that it actually is a marker for doing better. I've found that psychologically switching from anastrozole to letrozole or back and forth sometimes makes a difference. I do believe that when they get those symptoms, it makes me feel committed to sticking with an aromatase inhibitor. And if it makes the patient feel better to try switching between drugs in the class, I'm happy to do it. Lowell, I actually interviewed Jack Cusick at the San Antonio meeting. And one of the things, of course, we talked about was this paper. I don't know whether you, have you heard about it? Yes, I saw that paper and I kind of gave it out to some of my colleagues saying, see, tell your patients that their arthralgias and hot flashes are good for them. So, (laughs) I mean, has it really, you know, it's interesting too. I think a lot of people don't read the Lancet Oncology. So when you looked at that paper, did it kind of change the way you approach these patients with arthralgias? 
you know, it would be very rare for me. It just gave me a little more maybe backbone to try and get patients to work through it. And, you know, I think it is helpful for the occasional patient who is sort of borderline. I think if a patient is a low-risk patient and really has tremendous difficulties with any of the AIs, they're still going to come off. But I think when you have a higher-risk patient, I think that seeing that data may help some physicians, including myself, at least have a little more backbone to try and talk the patient to staying on the trial. Because at least now we're addressing this as a significant problem. You know, five or six years ago, it was like, you know, no one's supposed to get this. And now people are realizing that this is something you see in about a third of the patients. And it's sometimes very significant. One of the patients I was going to present today, what we decided not to do this one, is the one that I've had to cycle about every, for some strange reason, about every three months I have to cycle her AI. She can take them, she's been on all of them, and she takes them for about three months, then she gets intolerable arthralgias, and I switch to another one, and that's good for a few months, and then, you know, it may just all be mental, but we've had to go through all of them. Now, this patient also, Skip, brings up the issue of sequence of hormones in the metastatic setting for the patient who's postmenopausal. Hopefully, she'll have a good response or she'll at least stable disease on the aromatase inhibitor. If she does progress and it's not sort of a critical situation, what would you be thinking about in terms of the next or maybe even the third hormone? Sure. I am certainly more of a fan of going from an aromatase inhibitor to fulvestrant and then often back to probably a steroidal aromatase inhibitor, exomethine, being my sequence that I utilize. But this woman hasn't had tamoxifen. She's not had tamoxifen, and that's an excellent choice and something certainly to consider. I've actually used some ferristan, which is another selective estrogen receptor modulator that is used more commonly in Europe, but that's also been available and helps some patients out. So you're right. We should keep that in the mix also. 